0: I'm Helen MacDonald, editor for the analysis section of the BMJ. I'm now joined by Tim Goodnow, professor of pathology and medicine at Stanford University, and Mike Murphy, professor of blood transfusion medicine at the University of Oxford, to discuss their paper, do liberal blood transfusions cause more harm than good? So about three months ago, the Choosing Wisely campaign, this initiative to support evidence-based healthcare to minimise the harms of overtreatment, identified the use of blood transfusion as as something um, that needed to be addressed. Um, Could you talk us through a bit more about that?
1: This is Tim Goodnow. The Choosing Wisely campaign was an initiative of the American Board of Internal Medicine and th- they uh, have identified that blood transfusion is not only the most common therapeutic intervention in healthcare delivery but is also uh, on everybody's top five lists of the most uh, uh, overutilized and inappropriately used therapy.
0: So in your article you explain this this contrast between restrictive transfusion practices and liberal blood transfusion. Can you just tell us the difference between those two approaches?
1: So a restrictive transfusion practice would be to allow the level of anemia to become more moderate before you intervene with a blood transfusion. And of course, there's many other things you can do to manage anemia besides blood transfusion. In contrast to a liberal transfusion practice where you would do this at a a milder degree of anemia, you'd be more proactive, more liberal uh, with respect to blood transfusions.
0: But aside from the fact that we obviously don't want to waste blood, what, what are the risks of using too much blood?
2: Well, there are a number of risks that are, are, are well identified and in most patients' mind, the, the greatest risk is transfusion transmitted in, infection. But The efforts that the blood services do to eliminate donors with high risk of transmitting infection and then testing the blood means that the... The actual risk of transfusion transmitted infection is is very low, but there are other, other risks such as acute transfusion reactions, pulmonary reactions like transfusion associated lung injury and circulatory overload, and those two latter complications are in fact the the greatest risk to patients of of morbidity and and mortality associated with transfusion. And then there are more mundane risks such as errors in the transfusion process leading to patients receiving the the wrong blood and the greatest risk to patients is an ABO incompatible red cell transfusion uh, always associated with an error in the transfusion process. But improvements in transfusion practices worldwide have led to a reduction in, in those type of, of errors. And, um, and then there are um, risks of transfusion that we understand less well, risks that may be due to uh, immunomodulatory effects of transfusion leading to an increased risk of infection in, in patients. and and those risks we understand less well, but recognize that um, patients would would benefit from from receiving less transfusion more than uh, greater than transfusion, hence the interest in restrictive transfusion practices.
0: In your article, it's not just the clinical risks of blood products that you talk about, you talk about um, some of the basic science that underpins blood transfusion. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Well, it's long been known that um, there are uh, storage lesions uh, related to uh, putting a a unit of blood into a a refrigerator in the blood bank for up to 35 or 42 days before transfusion. Um, One of the most important is the loss of an enzyme, what we call 2,3-DPG, diphosphoglycerate, Uh, an intracellular red cell enzyme uh, very early in the storage uh, process, probably within five to seven days of blood storage. And what this does is uh, when the blood is transfused, the transfused red cells hold on to oxygen more tightly, the oxygen dissociation curve is shifted to the left, and they give it up reluctantly to to the tissues. And uh, now it, once the blood is uh, in vivo, the transfused blooded, the repletion of 2,3-DPG does take place over six to 24 hours after transfusion, but at least acutely, even though the oxygen delivery goes up, oxygen consumption uh, may not be uh, benefited because of the reluctance of these transfused red cells to um, release oxygen to the tissue. So we think that if uh, a, a benefit is seen acutely with transfusion, and this is commonly perceived, it may be related more to the volume than uh, the, of the blood rather than the red cells itself. And so this has caused uh, people to consider that maybe uh, we should not be transfusing red blood cells acutely simply on the basis of a laboratory value, but um, perhaps volume expanders uh, such as a crystalloid or colloid therapy Um, allowing the normal cardiovascular response of the patient to preserve um, uh, oxygen transport in the setting of anemia. The other storage lesion that has uh, caught our attention uh, is uh, maybe uh, uh, that transfused blood may be injurious uh, related to the loss of the natural malleability or the flexibility of the red cells as they go through the microcirculation, the, the capillary bed, and uh, transfused blood from the blood bank may be more rigid. The red cells may cause microvascular plugging, which would explain a lot of retrospective observational studies that have identified that heavily transfused patients do more poorly in terms of short and long-term outcomes, including mortality and morbidity, than people who are not transfused. And this Recognition of, was the motivation for many of these uh, prospective randomized control clinical trials comparing different transfusion triggers. So we now have uh, pretty good level one evidence in the literature in a wide variety of clinical settings, uh, every one of these, by the way, being a non-inferiority uh, clinical trial design showing no difference between a restrictive and a liberal transfusion practice with respect to patient outcomes as measured by mortality. Um, There is one exception to that, and that's the uh, clinical trial in upper GI bleeding on the medical service where there was actually a safety signal against um, the the liberal transfusion cohort uh, that was significant at the P.05 level. And so that trial actually showed patients doing better with a restrictive transfusion um, uh, strategy
0: and that's quite a wide variety of clinical settings and i know in your article you write that in addition to those there's also a cochrane meta-analysis of of a, a wider collection of trials as well to sort of i suppose group a lot of those a lot of those trials together um what what did you make of that well they as as
2: tim has just just said and they they show um a signal for for benefit in terms of reduced transfusions, which is no, no surprise in the restrictive transfusion group. They also suggest a a benefit, as as Tim has also described, in terms of of morbidity morbidity and and also mortality, when all the all the trial data are included together. But the 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 statistical significance is is only only just significant. And as you you say, they they cover a a fair variety of clinical conditions, but there are some exceptions to that. Um, For example, uh, there's been no no trial yet in in patients with hematological disease and patients with hematological disease are one of the, the biggest users of blood. There's also been concern about uh, the use of restrictive transfusion strategies in, in patients with major cardiac disease, for example acute myocardial infarction and There's been no good trial in in that setting yet, but concern that actually a restrictive transfusion strategy may not be appropriate and then And then there's also patients with with uh, chronic anemia. And in in that situation, it's generally recognised that the transfusion strategy needs to be individualised for, for the patient, depending on their age and comorbidity.
0: And this is one of the difficulties, isn't it, in pinning down what restrictive blood transfusion is, that it isn't a haemoglobin level of, of a certain number. Can you give us any idea of the ballpark hemoglobins that were chosen in these trials as as warranting um giving or not giving um a transfusion
1: well the the ballpark uh, hemoglobin uh, levels uh, were on for the restricted groups uh, uh, 70 to 80 uh, grams per liter uh, in contrast to 90 to hundred grams per liter in the more uh in in the liberal cohort so that is a clinically meaningful separation uh, in terms of uh, transfusion triggers but it's worth noting that the the average hemoglobin level at transfusion is not quite the same as the target hemoglobin as you might predict in a clinical trial so the take home message that there is something magical about a hemoglobin of 7 or 8 below which the patient should be transfused and above which the patient should not be transfused is, in my opinion, not what these clinical trials showed. But we don't know what the precise level of hemoglobin should be. And in my own view, uh, it's clinical judgment, uh, starting with a laboratory determination, but also taking into account the bedside examination of the patient, the symptoms and the signs and the risk factors that less is more. A restrictive transfusion practice is uh, almost certainly more beneficial for that patient compared to a more liberal transfusion practice.
0: And how is that evidence um, and clinical judgment played out in the guidelines that have been produced? Well,
1: there have been
2: multiple guidelines and they, they generally make the, the, the same recommendations. The, the major challenge is actually implementation of the, of the recommendations and it's it's interesting that uh, red cell usage is is decreasing around the world there is still uh, evidence from audits and reviews of practice that blood use is is still occurring above the levels recommended in the in the guidelines and there may be some some way to go yet
0: as choosing wisely pick up this campaign and this theme of of too much transfusion going on What suggestions have been made about the mechanisms to actually try and reduce transfusion or iron out some of that variation that's being seen?
1: One of our recommendations in our uh, commentary is to uh, leverage electronic uh, health records. And uh, we have published evidence to suggest that if you use what we call smart best practices alert, which is a pop-up, when a treating physician orders a unit of blood, uh, the pop-up reminds the treating physician that there are uh, published guidelines and there's a link available to the guidelines, uh, basically asking them, why are they transfusing? And um, I think that this is probably uh, the most effective thing we've been able to do, this coupled with education, asking the treating physician and the team to think twice and discuss amongst themselves, are they sure they want to transfuse based on this laboratory value? And if so, could they please give a reason? And uh, anytime you uh, track people's behavior, we call this the Hawthorne effect, people are inclined to change their behavior. And we've had about a 25% reduction in blood transfusions at Stanford, which is a profound reduction in blood transfusions uh, simply by implementing this system, asking people to think twice about a transfusion. And of course, there's a lot of associated education that goes along with this, but I think you're, what we're dealing here with is a, a a culture change.
0: Is there anything that's worth highlighting from the Choosing Wisely campaign in particular? The, the first bullet um, in the Choosing Wisely campaign that's related to
2: transfusion is around don't transfuse more units of blood than absolutely necessary. The second bullet is don't transfuse red blood cells for iron deficiency without hemodynamic instability and we've we've mentioned that. Don't routinely use blood products to reverse warfarin. Uh, discontinuing warfarin and administering vitamin K are alternatives for, for, patient, for patients who don't have bleeding. The, the fourth recommendation is don't perform serial blood counts on clinically stable patients to, to minimize the volume of blood lost um, by patients in, in hospital. And then the last one is don't transfuse O negative blood except to O negative patients and in emergencies for women of childbearing potential with unknown blood group, and that's to to minimise the the, the problem of the short supply of O negative blood units, which are extremely valuable for patients who are admitted with major bleeding in an emergency.
0: That's very interesting. And where do you see bigger picture and thinking longer term? Where where do you see blood transfusion going with these strategies underway what what further work is there to do well we we know
2: from um, from reviews of blood transfusion practice worldwide that there is still a considerable inappropriate use of of blood so use of blood outside what is recommended in 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 guidelines so there's still a considerable way to go in terms of optimising the the use of, of blood for for patients and avoiding the the risks of blood transfusion that we know very well.
0: So for you, it's about implementing what we already know as as the next step. So are there any research um, uncertainties or anything else that should be looked into? The the recent. Um, increase in in evidence for good transfusion practice has largely been in
2: the area that we've been discussing around restrictive red cell transfusion practice there there are lots of other areas of transfusion practice which which require better evidence for example the the use of plasma transfusions for patients with hemostatic abnormalities, for example, in trauma patients who are receiving massive
1: blood transfusions. And another one that I would mention is the um, early identification, evaluation, and management of anemia in what we call pre-admission testing. With preemptive evaluation in elective surgical patients to get a blood count up to 30 days before the procedure to allow time to evaluate and identify correctable anemias, mm. such as iron deficiency anemia, is very important mm. because if an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You can, you can avoid a lot of un- unnecessary blood transfusion subsequently if you can manage the, uh, manage the anemia preoperatively.
0: You've been listening to Mike Murphy from Oxford and Tim Goodnow from Stanford discuss the problems of too much blood transfusion. Their analysis article setting out all the evidence we've discussed today is now available on theBMJ.com.